0: Well, today's preaching passage comes from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6, as Pastor Moody continues preaching through this wonderful book. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6, all the way to 7, verse 4. So would you stand as we read God's word? And, And let me warn you, this is a long passage. If you need to drop down, if you get weak knees, no one's going to judge you. Just do it. We don't want anyone falling over on this. So this is God's word, Nehemiah 6, starting in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecathurim in the plain of Ono." But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, sambalet for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is while you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, saying, No such things of you have said have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hand will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Metahabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Ilul, in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son of in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son, Johanan, had been the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid." Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Well, we come to the next in our series in this book of Nehemiah, and we're looking at how Nehemiah is teaching us to rebuild. And we've been seeing each week what a relevant word that is uh, for us as we face a situation around the world, in this country, locally, everywhere, uh, which is calling us to fresh challenges and fresh opportunities But in particular, we need then to think about how to rebuild. But there are potential resistance to that message. and We looked at one last week. Someone might be thinking, well, what about the poor? The message here is to rebuild based upon God and his word and the Bible and the gospel. But Someone might say, what about the poor? What about injustice? What does Christianity have to say about that? So we looked at that last week. This week we have another potential barrier to this message to rebuild that is addressed in the story. And that barrier is a more practical one. A more personal one. What if I don't feel I can rebuild? What if I feel like I've just had enough? I give up. I can't do it anymore. It's too hard. You're asking me to rebuild based upon God. I'm just trying to survive. Why should I trust in God? And so here we have a series of tests, a conspiracy against Nehemiah and God's people that Nehemiah defeats And so we're going to look at the conspiracy and then how Nehemiah defeats it. And the conspiracy, well, there really there are four waves of this conspiracy. Uh, The first you'll find in uh, verse two, where there's a letter. Sambalat and Geshem, who are the enemies of Nehemiah and God's people, sent to me find later it's by letter, saying Come and let us meet together at Haciferim in the plain of honor. Well, what could be wrong with that? Uh, in essence, what they're saying on the surface is uh, you and I are loggerheads. There's a conflict between Sambalak and Geshem and Nehemiah and God's people. They're offering a beating to resolve this problem. And they're also offering to meet on neutral ground. We don't know exactly where Haciferim in the Plain of Ono is. Probably it was somewhere north of Jerusalem. But the point of it is that it's neither Samaria, where Samballot's power base was, nor Jerusalem, which of course was Nehemiah's power base, but a neutral ground somewhere in between. Not in his office or Nehemiah's office, but in a coffee shop. Somewhere that's neutral territory. And we're going to meet together and talk it out. What could be wrong with that? But what Nehemiah discerns is he says, but they intended to do me harm. In other words, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Nehemiah away from his friends, away from his support, get him isolated, and then attack him perhaps just verbally, but almost certainly physically, they're intending to kill him in some quiet place in the wilderness where there's no one else around. And this first test, which is subtle, yet very dangerous, is relentless. Uh, they, 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 over and over again, four times, verse 4, they, 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 and we'll see how he answers in a moment when we come to how he defeats it. But four times comes this particular wave of the conspiracy, over and over and over again. What they're saying is, let's compromise. We get the same kind of tests, don't we? A little bit of sin... I'm, I'm not asking you to commit adultery, but let's, let's get lunch together and talk. What could be wrong with that? It's an emotional connection. It's not a physical connection. What, what's wrong with that? And over and over and over and over again comes the request. You'll be tempted today and tomorrow. Tomorrow. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, this relentless request for a little bit of compromise—that's the first wave of conspiracy. Uh, the second wave um, comes in verse five. Again, it's a letter, but it's a new, a new kind of attack. So in the same way, Sam Ballot for the fifth time, sent his servant to me, but now with an open letter in his hand. In other words, this email is now blind copied to everyone in their database. <laughs> uh, they're making sure, so he comes with a letter, open letter in his hand, so anyone who wants to can read it. And uh, what it says is slanderous. In it was written, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, as if he was a reliable witness, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king, he's referring to Artaxerxes, the Persian king of the Persian Empire. The king will hear of these reports, so come now and let us take counsel together. Again, this is very subtle, very clever kind of attack. He is claiming that they're rebels. But he does it in such a way that it's almost believable that people could be saying it. Now, Nehemiah was very loyal to King Artaxerxes. He'd been cut to the king. He had, he had written letters of permission to be doing what he was doing. And yet, of course, Nehemiah, as a God-fearing Jew, had a hope for another king, for the Messiah to come. Not yet. It's somehow believable that people could be saying this. What is more, the way that um, uh, the, uh, the enemy, Ballat and Geshem and the rest, position this correspondence is that uh, they're on the side now of uh, Nehemiah. Um, come and let us take counsel together. In other words, I'm the governor of Samaria. I could help you with this. It's a problem, but I'm on your side. Let's talk about how we can solve the problem. Again, that's a very common approach to testings that you will experience. One 18th century preacher, it's such a common tactic, I'm quoting from a long time ago so you realize how common it is. One 18th century preacher said, it is very common for those who attack us To represent the opinions of the malicious as the opinions of the many. In other words, everyone is saying this. There are lots of people who feel like this. By which you know what they really mean is I think this plus my friend But that's not how it's positioned to you. Everyone is saying this. It's the common view. And that is a a challenge, a temptation, isn't it? These days, everyone thinks it's okay to cheat on your taxes. These days, everyone thinks it's okay just to have a little white lie. These days, everyone thinks it's okay to have some sexual liaison outside of heterosexual marriage, a covenant Christian commitment. Everyone thinks it's all right. And we'll see how Nehemiah defeats these conspiracies in a moment, but that's the second. The third uh, conspiracy is the most insidious and uh, this one is really religious. So, what happens, this is from verses 10 to 14, is uh, they hire false prophets to pretend to be speaking for God to get Nehemiah to do what they want him to do. And so, the, the first of the false prophets is Shemaiah, and uh, he's confined to his home, verse 10. We don't know why the Hebrew tells us he's uh, confined to his home. Uh, it, it's possible. The, the, the reason why it's put like this is Shemaiah is presenting himself as especially pious. He's uh, locked in his prayer closet. <laughs> I've really been praying about this. He's confined to his home. And the prophecy, and it is a prophecy that, that it tells us later. This is positioned as a prophecy. He says, "Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night." And again and again, this this prophecy from false prophets is uh, the conspiracy comes uh, against um, Nehemiah, uh, verse fourteen. Also, the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who said basically the same. The same thing. Well, this, this can happen these days as well. I remember one, uh, one uh, preacher who was a friend of mine many, many years ago told me one story about how he was getting ready to preach on Sunday morning and uh, someone came up to him, tapped him on the shoulder, looked him in the face and said, God has told me that I am to preach this morning. To which my friend said, well, God hasn't told me But that's quite an easy one. It's harder when someone says, um, God is a God of love. I'm in love. And therefore this action must be right. Well, it's taking a theological truth, God is a God of love, imbalancing it from the full description of God who is also holy And using it to give motivation to an action the Bible says is wrong. But it's a hard one to resist. This false prophecy. A false use of the prophetic word in the Bible. The Bible says you are to live at peace. Your marriage relationship is not a peaceful one. Therefore you should just leave. Leave. It's taking one principle and applying it illegitimately. The Bible also says God hates divorce. It's, it's taking a religious principle and using it as a sort of band-aid to allow some to do what they want to do anyway. It happens all the time. Less sophisticated ways, more sophisticated ways. Theological textbooks are full of this kind of misuse of scripture outside of context. It's a significant pressure that we can feel. And we'll see how Nehemiah resists it in a moment. The fourth uh, conspiracy uh, is um, if the third was the most insidious, the fourth is perhaps the most difficult. And uh, this is relational. So verse 18 of chapter 6, it says, Many in Judah were bound by oath to him. That is to Samballot, the enemy of God's people. What does it mean they're bound by oath? Well, the Bible tells us because he was the son. uh, This is Tobiah who's one of the the enemies. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son Jehohan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. In other words, there's an oath, a vow, a covenant commitment by marriage that means that even in the very heart of God's people at the time, there's a pull through that oath commitment in a non-biblical direction. Well, that too can be very difficult. If you're um, not yet married and you're looking around, who would be a good person to marry? You want to make sure you marry someone who, first of all, loves Jesus. Not just, you know, check box goes to church occasionally, but loves Jesus. Second, someone that you get along with, that could be a friend for you, that you can talk with. And then third, someone to whom you are at least reasonably attracted. Oftentimes men put it the other way around. First of all, I want someone really attractive. Then someone who is a friend. And third, someone who, yeah, is a Christian. Oftentimes, women put it in the middle. I want someone I really get along with. We have such a good time together. We can talk for hours. And I want them to be attractive too. And yeah, they should be a Christian. No, 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 no. First loves Jesus. Then someone you can get along with. And then someone to whom you are at least reasonably attracted. Well, what about if you are already married? Put in your marriage a higher oath, a stronger commitment, a covenant to God. You say, what does that mean? What it means is reading the Bible and praying together. It's very hard to hate someone that you pray with. In all my years of pastoral counseling, I have never yet come across any married couple that prays together and reads the Bible together each day that has any serious marital difficulties. Not once. Pray together. Read the Bible together. So, those are the four waves of the conspiracy. How does Nehemiah defeat them? Well, uh, first of all, he absolutely refuses to compromise. Uh, verse 3 I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? In other words, he has a priority. He has a principal commitment to what Jesus taught us. Seek first the kingdom of God and he's not going to be sidetracked. Don't be sidetracked from your calling as a father, as a husband. As a mother, as a wife, as a pastor, as an elder, as a deacon, as a teacher. To mess around with some sort of ridiculous controversy. Do what God's called you to do. Don't be sidetracked. So that's the first way he defeated the conspiracy. He absolutely refused to compromise. I'm doing what God wants me to do and I'm not going to take time off to stop. I'm going to do it. And that's it. Over and over and over again, he said the same thing. No, 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 I'm going to keep going. Absolutely refused to compromise. Then second, the second way he defeated the conspiracy, he had a firm grasp of truth. So, verse 8, and then there's this conspiracy theory they come up with, which is nonsense about him rebelling against the king and all the rest. And so he says, verse 8, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. He has a firm grasp of the truth. There are all sorts of conspiracy theories around us today. You no doubt have come across them yourself. QAnon is one and there are others. What Nehemiah does here is he understands the very nature of a fake false conspiracy theory is that it's just Invented out of your own mind? Karl Popper, who was one of the great philosophers of science, said that for a scientific theory to be acceptable, it must be potentially falsifiable. At least potentially proved to be wrong. So many of these conspiracy theories around us It's impossible to prove them wrong. Why? Because they're just made up out of people's minds. And by that nature, not only are they wrong, they don't even rise to the level of being wrong. They're fantasy. You're just making it up out of your own mind. He had a firm grasp of the truth. And so often the temptations that come against us, we think that they're strong arguments, but really they're not. Uh, C.S. Lewis understood this so well in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where he describes how an older devil is giving advice to a younger devil about how to tempt uh, his patient. And and the older devil at one point says, to, to listen to you younger devils, you would think that it was our job to make arguments, it's our job to fuddle, he says, that is to confuse. We are not there to teach. We're there to confuse. Lots of people saying this. Everyone thinks this. Nehemiah has a firm grasp of the truth. No such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. And then, verse 9. He says this, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, in my version of the Bible, and perhaps in yours as well, it says, there's a footnote there that says that Hebrew lacks, O God. In other words, in the original, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. It says, but now, strengthen my hands. And the translator supplies the phrase, O God, because they are interpreting the Hebrew To be a prayer, but now strengthen my hands, they assume it's he's praying to God, which is possible. Or it's possible he's really speaking as it were to himself. Come on, Nehemiah, now's the time to be strong. Strengthen your hands. You can interpret it as a prayer if you like, and of course many people have. It's interpreted that way in our translations. Myself, I think of it more, Nehemiah of course prays elsewhere in great length, and prayers fantastically significant and important in the book of Nehemiah. But here I think it's more him saying to himself, come on Nehemiah, get strong. We need that too. Sometimes I think we Christians, and perhaps you're not yet a Christian, and I'm speaking to the the Christians. We Christians listen so much to devotional material or songs that are gentle, quiet, reflective, that we, we lose this... This grits. I sometimes feel we need to listen less to the kumbaya kind of material and a bit more to the theme tune from Rocky. Like, let's get strong! And Nehemiah says the same sort of thing later. He, he says, uh, uh, verse 11, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. It's like, I'm going to be a man here. I'm stepping up. I'm not going to do it. Be strong, Nehemiah. Be strong, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 where it says take courage or in the older translations it put it as quit thyself like a man. Get tough. Hold on to your convictions. Don't be a pushover. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But then finally, as he defeats this conspiracy, he does it by uh, building a team. You see this in verse 2 of chapter 7. I gave my brother Hanani <clears throat> and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. That he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So there's there's Nehemiah. He's, He's discerned that he's surrounded by these relational connections that are pulling God's people in a wrong direction through marriage. And they're being yanked in this other direction. So what he does is he builds another team. He shrewdly delegates That's what Paul told Timothy to do in the New Testament. Entrust the truth to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So here's Hanani who proved that he was reliable by coming to find Nehemiah when he, 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 from when he traveled all the way from Jerusalem and told him what was going on, he proved his reliability. And there's Hananiah, who'd been governor of the castle and approved his faithfulness. The faithful and God-fearing men. And he delegated to them. He built another team. But that's true not just in church life, not just in organizational life. But true in personal life as well. You need to have around you. Friends. Who fear God. The myth of individualism. Is that. We will just do what we think is right. Whatever anyone else says around us. But the truth is we are far more influenced by those around us than we like to pretend. You need to be involved in a small group. You need to be involved in an adult community. You need to carefully pick friends who will not twist scripture, who will not ask you to compromise, but will stand firm with you That's how he defeated the conspiracy of those four ways. Um, A pastor from Haiti once gave an illustration like this to make this point. He said there was a a man who wanted to sell his house for, let us say, $3,000. And there was another man who wanted to buy the house. But he could not afford $3,000. And so as they haggled back and forth, eventually the man who wanted to sell said, okay, I'll sell it to you for $2,000 on one condition. Oh yeah, what's that condition? The condition is that I'll put a nail above the front door that is mine. You can have everything else, but that nail I'm putting above the front door, that's mine. And the other man said, well, fine, yeah, that's okay. So they, he sold the house for $2,000. Some uh, time later, the first man who had sold the house wanted to buy it back. And he came to the, uh, to the man to whom he'd sold the house and asked him to, uh, uh, to sell it, uh, but the, uh, he didn't want to sell it. He, he, he liked the house that he bought. He didn't want to give it back to the, the man who'd sold it to him. And so he said no. So the first man who'd originally sold the house... One day, very early in the morning, went to the front door of that house and on that nail that was his, he hung a very large and very dead and very much rotting animal. I began to stink the place out. Soon enough, the guy wanted to sell it, but no one would buy it. The first guy got the house back for practically nothing. One little nail. One little area of compromise. The thin end of the wedge. Don't give the devil a foothold. Well, you say, okay, fine, but you began this sermon describing to me how this was going to help me with this. I still feel like I can't do it. I'm overwhelmed. Okay, yes, but you see, in the story, you're not Nehemiah. I'm not Nehemiah. In the story, we're the people that Nehemiah is protecting And there was a greater Nehemiah who came. He too was tempted over and over again. Man shall not live by bread alone, he said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He he had a firm grasp of truth. Tempted in every way and yet without sin. He's a faithful and great high priest who is able to empathize with our weaknesses because he experienced the same temptation and yet he conquered sin and death and the devil. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand and in him, and as Paul puts it, in the power of his might, you can stay strong let 's pray together. Our Lord God, we do thank you so much for the example of Nehemiah, and we pray that, uh, like him, we'll be able to defeat the attacks and temptations that we face also on a daily basis. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for Jesus, in whom and by whose power we can stand and stand strong. And so we bow before you, Jesus, and worship you. For you are our great high priest. And we thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that in these trying and difficult days, you would empower us to be faithful. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.